Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jones Bowden He's got it England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket with me Simon Hughes and me Simon Mann And I see you've got your Christmas decorations up. Well, if you could call it that, uh, it looks like some weeds out of the garden across your bookcase. What do you class that as? I think that's what it is, actually. I think they're plastic weeds, actually. Not put up by me, but put up by my wife. They they do look lovely anyway. It's a seasonal sort of feeling, very much so. So this is episode 632 of the analyst inside cricket. Did you know that? And did you also know that that means it's now we're eight episodes past the highest ever partnership in first class or test cricket, 624 by Mahila Jai Wardner and Kumar Sangakara. It's quite a fee, isn't it? So we are officially the longest serving partnership in first class cricket. Can we claim that? No, I don't think we can, Yoz. But it's been going a long time. I know that. We've spoken a lot of words uh, over the years. There's been a, a few words spoken in Australia in, in the last uh, few days, and we're going to talk about that in this uh, podcast. The, the David Warner versus Mitchell Johnson clash. I'd actually quite like to see that clash on the field, well, yeah, back 10 years. We're also going to talk about England and where they go in one-day cricket. And there are, few, there are a few controversies around, aren't they? Mushfika Rahim out obstructing the field today. What on earth uh, was he doing? And also, Salman Butt called into the selection advisory committee for the Pakistan team and then withdrawn 24 hours later after people said, really, Salman Butt? Anyway, lots to talk about, Yoz. Yeah, there is. There, there is so much to talk about. Actually, I, you know, I feel that, that, that sort of Johnson against Warner, it sounds like one of those great legal battles that Hollywood made into blockbuster movies, like the Kramer versus Kramer, doesn't it? The off-field spat between Mitchell Johnson and David Warner. So this all started when Warner was announced as the Australian opener for the World Test Championship final at the Oval in June and also for the Ashes. And... Having been announced in the squad, he then said, right, I'm going to retire from Test cricket in the winter in Australia in December during the Australia-Pakistan Test Series in Sydney, my home ground. And it was that, that bit of it, that Johnson questioned. So he wrote a column at the time in the West Australian. He's revisited that column recently. What did he say, Simon? Well, he said... 
does David Warner deserve a hero send-off? As we prepare for David Warner's farewell series, can someone please tell me why? Why a struggling test opener gets to nominate his own retirement date? Now, the way he's going out is underpinned by more of the same arrogance and disrespect to our country. What will fans bring for Warner? Bunnings would sell out of sandpaper. And Bunnings, for those who don't know, is a DIY garden and hardware store. And obviously that refers to David Warner's uh, role in, in Sandpaper Gate. So, I mean, Johnson is it, you know, revisiting that, isn't he? And saying, you know, does someone who was involved in that deserve a hero send-off you know, at the end of his test match career? Yeah, and he was also saying, actually, that uh, Warner's record over the previous 12 months uh, as an opener was 26, uh, average 26, which wasn't great. And and obviously, he'd had his problems against Stuart Broad before that as well in 2019. And did he de- therefore deserve uh, the, the hero send-off that he was planning nine months ahead or eight months ahead or something? And and obviously, he's revisited that uh, that thought, that sentiment, partly because he's revealed also that he received, after the first article, a rather insulting text message from Warner himself. And he's talked about that in his own podcast, which is called The Mitchell Johnson Cricket Show, which is actually part of the same podcast stable that we're in, the Sports Social Podcast Network. So I thought I'd just play a little bit of his reaction to the general comments, backlash, about his statements and the reasons why he's revisited the subject because of the the Warner text. Well, from the message I got in in April after the, I think it was around the time of yeah, um, Candace had said a few, uh, said her a bit about not um, on the back page about not being openers good enough to take the position. So that was probably when I responded to that, and then I got her a message from Dave, which was quite. Um, personal, um, and, and I tried to ring him to, to try and talk to him about it, um, which I've always been open. I know I've been open to the guys. When I finished playing, I said, if I'm in the media and I'm writing things or saying things that you don't like, just come and speak to me. Like, it's it's never – it was never a personal thing then until probably this point. This is This is probably what drove me to writing the article as well, part of it. It's definitely a factor for sure. So some of the stuff that was said in that, I won't say it because I think that's up to Dave to say if he wants to if he wants to talk about it. There was some stuff in there that was was extremely um, disappointing what he said and and pretty pretty bad to be honest. Um, so um, yeah, so that's that sort of was a bit of a driver. Um, and again, a bit with with George as well. Um, you know, had sent me a message after the Lance Morris. Uh, article that I wrote and it was just a little bit condescending and um, you know when you receive it at all hours of the morning it was pretty yeah, disappointing Johnson there just on the Lance Morris uh, a comment Lance Morris a wild thing he's a fast bowler that's in the Australia squad for the Pakistan Test Series I think Mitchell Johnson was saying you know, why was he not playing for West Australia he was he was withdrawn uh, from the West Australia team and George Bailey who's the chairman of selectors in Australia uh, got in touch with him but he, he I mean he's also criticized uh, George Bailey as well he said he, he he played with Warner he played with Warner in three formats uh, he was too quickly out of playing and into the job of chairman of selectors and too close to some of the players. So, you know, he's had a, he's had a pop at George Bailey as well. Uh, you know, Bailey's come back to him and, and Johnson's had his say. And he's obviously, of course, 
had his say about uh, David Warner as well. I mean, it it is a if you're in the media, I suppose, and you, you know you want to make waves, don't you? I suppose you know you, you want to get your opinion out there. That's what you're being paid for to question whether David Warner, it, you know, should be allowed a, a sort of hero send off in Sydney. You know, is is a it's not the it's not the the most uh, excessive thing to say, is it? It's, it's not, you know, it, it's it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. David Warner's record in Test cricket has been ordinary for a long time now, and you know he is coming towards the end. Is it time to look at someone else, is, or is it time to you know give him a farewell? I mean, Stuart Brawl had a, a farewell of sorts, didn't he? Is, is Jimmy Anderson going to get a, a farewell at some time? It, it, it's not easy. It, it, not very few players actually get to choose the day that they're going to exit the stage. I mean, it's, of course, what you always want from retired players is some real genuine thoughts, uh, some honest thoughts, which you often don't get because the players are still too close to the people that they used to play with. And uh, Johnson's been quite brave, I think, in what he said. Uh, It's so often the case that as soon as you leave the circuit and become a media person... You become slightly alienated from the players, especially if things like this happen. I mean, I can remember actually uh, covering a long time ago now, but covering the 1993 Test Series in India, England-India Series. And in that series, I had just retired from playing. And in that series was a a guy called Paul Taylor, who was a fast bowler from North Ants, left-arm fast bowler, got picked for that Test Series. And he played in the first Test and effectively did absolutely nothing not not by his own lack of effort, but he did absolutely nothing except create lovely rough down the offside of the right-hander's off stump for the Indian off-spinner, Chowan, who took about eight wickets in the, in the test and England got, got hammered. And I wrote uh, in the, the Independent at the time, Paul Taylor, you know, tried hard, but actually his only impact was to create this lovely rough for the Indian off-spinner. And he took exception to that. He said, he, and, and he came to me the next day after the, the, the article had come out saying, I thought you were my mate. Well, I said, well, I was only saying what I observed. It's not a personal thing. I'm just saying what I observed as a professional commentator on the game. And, you know, it, we, we've hardly ever spoken since. You know, it, it, you, you can easily fall out with people. They become very sensitive and they sort of think that, You've, you've kind of joined the dark side as soon as you've gone into the media. And obviously this has happened with Johnson and Warner. I mean, Warner's a tricky character, isn't he? And when, when I talk to England players about, you know, post-Ashes drinks and, and the, any bonhomie that goes on between the teams, they all say, oh, you know, Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood, Mitchell Stark, lovely. And, you know, Steve Smith, a bit mad, but, you know, great, interesting to talk to. Warner can't get through to him, you know, or doesn't. They don't seem to have much rapport with Warner and he tries his best at times to be a sort of media personality and be friendly and everything. But behind that is a sort of slightly difficult character and probably that doesn't help in this situation because he's reacted badly to a former colleague casting aspersions on his own retirement plan. But he's done it in quite an insulting way, and that just puts people's backs up and makes them probably stick to their guns even more. I totally understand yeah. why they've they've fallen out over it. it, it it's an elder. It's human nature, isn't it? When someone criticises someone, they they often go back, and it's very rare that people say, "Actually, no, that's a reasonable." You've just made a very reasonable point in your column or on you know on on TV or in the newspapers. I mean, sometimes sometimes people are honest enough to say, "Yeah, that's that's a perfectly reasonable point," but generally speaking, that's not what happens. 
performance. And you've got to remember, and they're two different things. Playing and commentating are two different things. And I suppose it's, it's very galling for a player who used to be a teammate of, of, of Johnson's um, to hear him then make make these statements. But they, as I go back to my point, they, you know, they are they're perfectly reasonable issues uh, to raise. I think it, it, it seems from from this distance. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of pushback. Um, social media inevitably uh, is is ablaze. Uh, and Usman Khawaja has had his say as well, hasn't he? Uh, defending his opening colleague, you'd ex- you'd expect that teammates, you know, go into the into the media and, and def- defend their. Their colleagues, it's it's inevitable, really. Uh, I suppose, from our point of view, it's it's sort of interesting just to watch it all unfold, really. Absolutely, and, really. and of course, when the when the Test match series starts in Perth next week, it's Johnson's yeah. hometown. He'll be in the commentary yeah. team. Uh, yeah. All the cameras will be on him as he walks out to the middle to inspect the pitch to see if he and Warner uh, actually shake hands or uh, interact in any way. I suspect they won't. I think there'll be some distance between them because sometimes with this kind of thing, I think you just need a bit of time to to for it to all calm down and blow over, and then maybe they can get me mates again in due course. By the way, it's exactly ten years since Mitchell Johnson caused a storm of his own with his incredible bowling in the ashes of 2013-14. It was in Brisbane where, of course, he really shell-shocked England with that incredible spell in both innings at the Gabba, and England were, were well and truly gabba uh, And then Johnson took seven for 40, very much this time, uh, early December 2013 in Adelaide. He knocked over as to Cook with an absolute peach, I remember. Took about three in, three wickets in four balls in the middle of the innings. Terrorised the, the lower order. Took seven for 40 and set uh, England on a roll for a, a 5 nil drubbing. And, you know, he was just absolutely dynamite in that series, wasn't he, Johnson? I mean, just so far. I think that's the fastest bowling I've seen live ever. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah, it was. It was. It was stunning. It really was. And it got right into England, of course. Now, just talking about fast bowling, I was. I, I should just pause at this point to congratulate you for your interview with Ricky Elcock last week, which I thought was, it was really interesting. Is it, it go and back and have a listen to it if you haven't had a listen to the the podcast the Oz did with uh, Ricky Elcock, former uh, Middlesex and, and almost England fast bowler. And that was, you know, that's a really sad tale because he was picked to go on that England tour. I saw him bowl at Cheltenham, and he bowled a speed of light at Cheltenham, and that was a you know, it's a quick pitch. Certainly in those days, sort of late eighties, and a match between Middlesex and, and Gloucestershire, and you could actually you know totally see why England picked him. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great story, it really is. You know, r- you know right from the from the start to now, actually, because it's you know the story's still continuing. I won't sort of give give it all away. Have a, have a listen to it. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. And, and actually, the great thing about him was he was incredibly fast. He was seriously mm. fast. But also, he had a good sense of humour. And in the interview, he talks about coming to Malvern College for the first time, coming from Barbados, never been out of Barbados as a kid, and getting a scholarship to Malvern College and arriving there, the only black kid in the school. And he'd ne- he said, you know, I've never seen a remote control, TV remote control, or a toaster. And he, his line in the, in the podcast is, well, you know, why would you get lovely, fresh bread and put it in a machine and burn it. <laughs> you know, he just couldn't understand that. So that's the uh, the podcast I did last week with Ricky Elcock, and he has a book out as well about his life, which is why we did the podcast in a way. It's called Balls to Fly, which is a reference to the fact that he went from being a cricketer to being a, an airline pilot. So, yeah, mm. it, it is a good story, actually. Yeah, but I mean, talking about fast bowlers, I've seen John. Yeah, Johnson definitely in that Ashes series uh, ten years ago, lightning fast. I think Sean Tate has bowled some thunderbolts uh, when you know I've been watching. Uh, 
Malcolm Marshall. I remember watching him square on in the 1980s when he was. He, the thing about Malcolm Marshall was when he started his cricket career in his early days, he was fast. He was out and out fast, and then he became really canny as well and swung it and you know terrorised you and all your colleagues in county cricket and and batters in, in Test cricket as well. But I remember, you know, I remember him. I have such a clear memory of him bowling a ball to John Childs in a in a one day match between Gloucestershire and Hampshire, where John Childs gloved it for six over fine leg and and broke his hand. You know, in the in the same incident, he, he just sort of flung his hand at it, hit the hit the glove, went over the fine leg boundary at Bristol uh, for six, and then John Childs couldn't bowl in the the rest of the game, which is the, the only reason Gloucestershire lost that quarter final to to Hampshire back in the early eighties. Yeah, so Mal- Malcolm Marshall, you know, was was rapid. Uh, I mean, you go back to, in the seventies, uh, Jeff Thompson. I saw Show back to bowl quickly against Sachin Tendulkar in a World Cup match. But that that Johnson, for, I think it's the, it was the consistency, wasn't it, yours, really? The, you know, he managed to keep it going throughout the series. And every time he got the ball in hand, it was you just sensed something was going to happen. It was, it was something special. I, I mean, I, I've worked with him since as well. I, I, we, he, he was part of the BBC uh, Test Match special commentary team um, on a, an Ashes series. Not the last one, but one before that. And I... You know, ball in hand, terrifying, but actually quite, you know, very gentle, quite soft, softly spoken, gentle man. Quite like, very similar to Glenn McGrath, isn't he, actually? Mm. You know, off the field, he's a gentle giant. It's it's amazing. I mean, that's that bowling in, in 2013 by, by Johnson, just, I, I think it was the conditions as well, especially in Brisbane, where he just got the ball to slide off the surface really rapidly and get up really abruptly to the batsman's sort of neck area. And because he's quite a slingy bowler with a, a, a very uh, elongated bowling arm that goes stretches right back almost to the ground, a bit like Jeff Thompson, actually, a mirror image, you'd lose sight of the ball because it's hidden behind his back until suddenly his arm whiplashes over. And when he gets it right, he is absolutely deadly. But he's, he's so, um, so hostile and potent because he gets the lift from not very short and it gets up like Marshall, actually, it gets up neck height rather than ballooning over your head. It's that horrible height sort of between the rib cage and the chin where you can't avoid it. You can't duck because it's not getting up high enough. You can't weave out of the way because it's too quick and it's not all that short. And you end up sort of parrying it with your hands and parrying it in front of your face. And and then obviously your feet go nowhere and you just become a sort of basically a walking wicket and he absolutely terrorised England in that series dynamic so does, does Mitchell Johnson have a point in this? I mean what is where's the room for a redemption in, in cricket in life I mean we, we can almost tie it in with the Salman Butt story can't we you know, he, he was he was banned for 10 years you know he went to prison for 30 months he's you know he served his ban but he was back in cricket he thought he was anyway at the weekend Back as part of the advisory committee for the sort of selection panel for for Pakistan cricket, and then 24 hours later, you know, he was he was hooked off after the reaction. David Warner involved in uh, Sandpaper Gate, you know, he served his time, and that, I think that's probably his point, isn't it? He, you know, he was out of cricket, he he served his ban. Uh, really, in a way, it it I suppose it should be about form now, shouldn't it? Really, more than more than anything else, does he deserve to be at the top of the order on? You know, based on his form, he was good, very good in the World Cup. Excellent. I mean, there's no doubt about his his one day pedigree, but his Red Bull pedigree, you know, of late is you know, it's, it's been it's been pretty questionable actually, hasn't it? And Australia clearly, 
Australia going to have to move on soon because he's retiring. So you know they have to they are have to, going to have to go somewhere else. So is is there a bit of sentimentality involved? Is there you know is there a bit of a, a hangover from what happened with in, in South Africa? Yeah, you know, I, is that justified? I, I think I think there should be redemption for everyone. Really, uh, in you know we're talking about sport here, and we're talking about okay. So in the case of Warner, he did he he was probably the instigator of the of the sandpaper gate ball tampering, but you know it, it was a stupid thing to do. Uh, three three four years on. You know he's regained his his profile and his uh, sort of pedigree and his honesty. Um, you know there should be a, a time when you forgive people, but does that necessarily give them the right to name their own retirement schedule? And I, I know in a way I sort of agree with Johnson. Mm. Perhaps we've kind of you know cowtowing or the Australians are cowtowing to to Warner a bit too much. But, you know, he has been a great servant to, to, to Australian cricket. So that certainly is something worth commemorating. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's really, uh, I suppose, from our point of view, just sort of get the popcorn out and watch it unfold, isn't it, really? It's, it, you know, it, it's that and every, you know, people have their own uh, views on it and then eventually the cricket will start and it'll, it'll move on and Warner will retire and it'll all be sort of uh, yesterday's news, I suppose. Just, um, it's, it's interesting, actually, when you... One thing we were talking about, one thing we're going to go on to talk about is what happened in Bangladesh today where Mushfika Rahim was given out obstructing the field. He handled the ball, he knocked it away. The ball wasn't going to hit the stumps, I don't think, from, from Carl James. Actually, you see, if you see one angle of it, it was very wide. But his instinctive reaction as the ball was bowled, he played defensive shot, it bounced up and he went away and knocked, tried to knock it away with his right hand. He definitely made contact with it. Uh, and there was an earlier incident where he tried to do something similar when the ball's a bit closer to the stumps and he didn't actually make contact. Anyway, New Zealand appealed. It went upstairs to the to the third umpire. I'm not sure, actually quite sure why it went up to the third umpire. He thought the two standing umpires could make a you know, perfectly uh, cogent judgment based on what they'd seen. Anyway, they, they reviewed it and he was given out uh, obstructing the field. You know, the old law was was handled the ball, and what it made us think about was what laws, uh, because the law was changed from handle the ball to obstructing the field. We thought, you know, what laws would we change in the game? How would we uh, change the game? And one thing you came up with, yours actually, just relating back to what David Warner did, you know, in in, in South Africa, is actually you think players should be allowed to tamper with the ball. That was the that's the change you would make in the laws. And I, I, I wouldn't allow you to bring on implements. So Imran Khan sort of famously talked about a bottle top and things like that uh, that he so might, no that might have tops, used no once. Sandpaper. No, no bottle top, no sandpaper. No, you can't no, bring any right. external things on. Right. Obviously, that doesn't stop you from growing a very large thumbnail. And, you know, there have been many instances of uh, bowlers and fielders with thumbnails, you know, scratching the ball and, and helping the bowlers. I don't have a problem with that, actually. You've still got to bowl the ball in the right place and, you know, make it do something. Uh, so I, I think a bit of scratching the ball to make a game more interesting, especially a one-day game with two white balls where the ball never you know, loses its colour or anything now because they're using one at each end and a bit of reverse swing towards the end of an innings might make it more interesting than teams scoring 18 and over. So I think I actually quite like a bit of ball tampering provided you don't use anything external. Hmm. How much ball tampering would you get there? I mean, would, I mean would, would one side of the ball just be completely sort of scratched and sort of almost like chewed up? I mean, you say you can use you can use your you can use your fingernails. Can you use your teeth? I mean, there was was it was it Shane Afridi? Um, he didn't he bite the ball once. Well, I mean, you're, you're not allowed to put saliva on the ball anymore, so no, you not. could obviously remove that. 
concept. So you can use your fingers. Just your fingers. I, you can it? use your fingers. I mean, I wouldn't allow you know, rubbing it hard on the ground, for instance. I wouldn't allow that. Uh, because I, I tried that once, actually, in practice. I got a brand new ball. I rubbed it really hard on a concrete wall on one side, and it reverse swung immediately. Uh, so, and you know, I'm not going to go into the science of that. That's one for another podcast, but it does work. So I wouldn't allow sort of, you know, absolutely sort of strenuous rubbing of the ball on the ground, but a bit of fing- finger picking, a bit of seam lifting, you know, and and if you lift the seam too much, the ball falls apart and that's tough. You've got to carry on with it. Mm. All right. So just, just scratching the ball, that, that's, that's your, yeah. that would be your, what's, that would what's be yours your then? law change. Well, my, my law change would be, well, we've had, well, we think we're having uh, stop clocks in this one day series in West Indies and England, but uh, a couple, a couple of things about it. One, you have to do it three, Basically, you've got a minute to bowl the next over after the last one's finished, which is actually quite a long time. And you should be able to easily bowl, uh, you know, get into positions within a minute. But you have to transgress three times before the penalty of five runs is is brought in. So this is the this is the ICC's uh, trial. Uh, so, but mine is about speeding the test match game up. I think that if you don't bowl your overs, say end of a session, end of a day, I mean, you have to probably, you know, drill down into this if you don't bowl your overs in time for the start of the next session you have one fielder down and if you're say three overs down so between one and three you're one fielder down if you're four overs down five overs down say up to six you're probably not like to be more than six overs down you lose two fielders for those overs and I and I what I think would happen. So I I don't li- I don't really like the artif. I mean it is artificial in a way, but I don't really like the artificiality of, of you know losing runs. I, I quite like the idea of you know, still having to score runs, but it's a bit easier because you know you've got one fielder down or two fielders down. I just think you just there's so much just hanging around that, that goes on. Actually, your your point actually is the minute is quite a long time to to change over isn't it and it's actually not much of a, a penalty because you you you're very aware of this because you're trying to when you're doing your analyst role as you were at the world cup you're trying to fit in little segments aren't you between overs and you say so you know exactly how long it, it is between one over finishing and another over starting well i mean now the the over breaks are normally reserved for advertising uh, mm. but they are generally 30 seconds and when you're in india they try and cram in about four adverts in that 30 second period but i know when they're trying too hard because they have to kind of lop out of one advert before it's finished because the bowler's running in for the next over. So that's 35 seconds, 40 seconds max between overs. Between balls, it's more like 20 seconds. And that's fair enough. I don't think you need a minute. 40 seconds is ample. So I think a minute is excessive. OK, so in, in short form cricket, white ball cricket, 40, 45 seconds really actually is, is going to speed the game up. So what about my idea in, in, in test cricket? No, I think it's a good idea. Uh, and, I mean, obviously, there are times when it's the batting team's fault. Yeah, that's the, that, that is an the, issue. That the bowling uh, overs, the overs haven't been completed because batsmen are you know, messing around, waiting for helmets to be repaired. In the case of Angelo Matthews, obviously in the World Cup, and cost him his but wicket. allowances are made for that, though, yours. Allowances aren't they? I mean, are made for that, but it's still, there's sometimes batsmen not ready, you know, and, and you know, they pull away, don't they, because there's a mosquito on the sight screen or something. So, yeah. you know, there is a little bit of that. Batsmen are almost as guilty, but there's far too much loitering of fielders and bowlers. I like, actually, I mean, Stuart Broad was one who always marched back to his mark. Immediately. I know he appealed about eight times and over, but apart from that, he got on with the game and there just needs to be more of that urgency, really. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, you notice it actually when you're when we're covering Championship cricket, you you actually notice the difference between you know, when an over finishes and play restarts, how much quicker it is because you've got to get more overs in in, in, a, in a Championship day, and often you'll you know you will sort of look to your summarise, have a chat, and look at all oh, the the next guys running in at the other end. So you know, there is it is possible to do it, and of course you know. I don't want to sound like an old timer, even though I am. But you know, back in the day, you know, you used to rattle through loads of overs in a in a day's cricket, didn't you? I mean, you ninety overs would would be totally straightforward, wouldn't it? Back when you were playing, I mean, even more probably ninety six. I mean, actually, mm. there was one silly game when our over rate was slumping down a bit. You get mm. unit fined at the end of a couple of months yeah. for your low over rate average, and our low over rate average was under sixteen an hour. So we actually managed to bowl 40 overs in one hour against Essex. Uh, it was a bit of a farce, but the game was petering out into a draw. So John Embry bowled a succession of uh, overs from one end uh, to Graham Gooch, who just patted the ball back. There was a sort of agreement that Gooch wouldn't try and hit too many runs. He was the mate of John Embry. So uh, Gooch just patted the ball back to Embry, and he just bowled another one. And then the, the, then they changed ends, and somebody bowled from the other end. But we got 40 overs in in, in, in one hour. I mean, that was an excessive example. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, don't want cricket like that. No, that was, that was silly. No. I mean, you know, there was a fielder actually sitting on a deck chair during that spell right. because we knew the ball wasn't going to be hit into the outfield but you know generally you should Top be able to cricket, folks. <laughs> generally you should be able to maintain 15 or 16 overs an hour without so just on that yes, just on that a second so what what was the punishment was it was it a fine or was it um the points deduction fine Fine. Okay. So they, because in other, because actually, you'd think it would be to some extent middle uh, Essex's advantage to have Middlesex having you know be deducted points, wouldn't you? But if it was a fine, it would it wouldn't have made any difference to. It came out of the captain's expenses, and as we never saw any captain's expenses anyway, it no one really noticed it. Yeah. What did you think of the Mushfika Rahim uh, dismissal today? Well, you, foolish. You, you, I mean, an idiot. You know, for a bloke who's played eighty odd Test matches, he should know better. And it's ironic that it's the team that appealed for a timed out that were kind of almost hoisted by their own petard by uh, this silly handle the ball or obstructing the field as it is now. Uh, the ball wasn't going anywhere near the stumps anyway, and his reaction should have been to knock it away with the bat if he needed, if he felt he needed to. But obviously, for some reason, perhaps, and somebody sort of suggested that because batsmen in the nets get used to blocking the ball and then throwing it back to the bowler, it was sort of a, a, an inst, a, a kind of instinctive reaction to, as soon as you've defended the ball, kind of go with it with your hand. But I'm sorry, it's a test match. He should have known better and he deserved mm. his uh, verdict. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the ball wasn't going back onto the stumps. I think that's that's the you know that's the one thing about it. I, I agree. I got no sympathy. I mean, I wouldn't. I would if I were ever batting, I would never touch the ball. You know, even to even to throw it to the back to the fielders, which you sometimes see. Uh, that's their job, isn't it, to field the ball? It's hard enough batting as it is without doing anyone's uh, fielding. I was there actually in, in in Bangalore, Bengaluru as it is now, when Michael Vaughan was given out handled the ball as it was the last player to be given out handled the ball this is obstructing the field now because of the law change the last player to be given out handled the ball I had a look at it again this morning and it was it was a strange one where he went for a sweep shot and the ball sort of ballooned up and it was coming down between his little arm and his leg sort of landed on the ground and he and he sort of trapped it with his hand and then knocked it away to the short leg fielder now the, the, there was the, the remotest possibility that the ball could have spun back onto the stumps and, and Michael by trapping it uh, you know, obviously 
rubbed that out altogether. But he he walked off utterly bemused. I mean, I think they thought that uh, India should have called him back and they shouldn't have appealed for it. And then I think Nasser, who was England's captain at the time, he said as well that you know I'd like to think if we were in that situation that we would have withdrawn the appeal and, and you know not had the the player walking off for that. But I do think I think the the bottom line was. Uh, yours. I don't. I'm not sure that Michael knew the law, and that's that's sometimes the problem, isn't it? Because you can knock it away with your bat, or trap it with your bat, or your foot, but not with your hand. And you know, you should you should know the laws, but there are so many of them sometimes that that people get a bit lost. Well, as a man who uses a lot of social media, at least Michael Vaughan knows plenty about tech. And NordVPN is the fastest virtual private network out there. One click and your online privacy is protected. And it's an open sesame to a new world of content and opportunity. So when I was at the Cricket World Cup in India recently, getting thoroughly depressed watching England, I used NordVPN to watch England at the Rugby World Cup in France until England got knocked out of that as well. But also NordVPN protected my private data like bank details, passwords and online identity. And when I was using public Wi-Fi, for instance, and you can switch your virtual location to access cheaper flights, hotels or other deals wherever you are in the world. All on the NordVPN app, which costs the same per month as a cafe latte. To grab our huge discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com slash AIC, that stands for Analyst Inside Cricket. Our code will also give you four additional months for free on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit nordvpn.com slash AIC to find out more and open the door to a galaxy of content. And after the break, we'll talk about England in the West Indies and their one-day reinvention, or so-called. So we're speaking on Wednesday morning before England's second one-day international in the Caribbean. You all know what happened in the first game on Sunday. England uh, losing that match in quite dramatic fashion, actually. I thought West Indies batted really well in, in you know the last uh, 10 overs. Shea Hope was, was excellent. Again, he's got a very good one-day international record, uh, Shea Hope. And when, whenever we, you know, when we're on sort of bus journeys or flights, whatever, during the World Cup, we had Carlos Brathwaite with us uh, in India. And we would talk, you know, we would do our best, our world's best 11 or something like that, you know. And he would always put Shea Hope in there. You know, he would just pipe up and say, Shea Hope. And he said, shut up, Carlos. He's not even here at the World Cup. You know, Weston didn't qualify because we were doing a sort of like a World Cup 11. But he, he always wanted Shea Hope in his side. Anyway, you can see why uh, the way he played on on Sunday and you know, Romario Shepard you know, striking it uh, really well as well. It, you know, it's supposed to be a, a restart for England, uh, but it didn't, you know, it fell apart at the end, didn't it? And their, their bowling just looked a little bit thin under pressure. What did you make of it, Yoz? Well, if it was a restart, uh, it stalled, didn't it? And, and yeah. actually sort of slumped into the lay-by, the, the, the car, because it was, uh, the bowling just looked pretty ordinary, actually. I think you described it as a, an a county attack. And, uh, well, it, no, it I, said, was. I said a good, a good, a good, a good, a good county, county attack. attack. Yeah, a good, a good county, county attack. attack, yeah. And it, it was just put to the sword by some outstanding batting towards the end, and at the start, actually, as well. 
Uh, I thought England's batting was pretty good, actually. I thought the top five were all looked look good. I thought I liked Salt and, and Will Jacks together as an opening pair. I think they complement each other well. I think Will Jacks looks more towards hitting through the offside or over the offside, and Salt is more leg side inclined. So I think the two of them actually work well together. They certainly got, got the impetus and they, they hit some fantastic shots. I mean, some of Salt's so wrist work, hitting the ball over the leg side is, is extraordinary and an amazing eye he's got as well. We know Will Jacks' bat speed. Um, so I think they, they are a good opening pair. I was I was a little bit uncertain about what Zach Crawley, how effective he would be. But actually, I, I thought he looked pretty good and he worked out a way of rotating the strike. Ben Duckett was probably the one who, who didn't su- succeed so well out of those top five, but I think I think he's got the potential to be a very good number four, sort of thinking almost like a replacement for Owen Morgan, actually, with that uh, you know, A, left-handedness, B, um, you know, ambidextrousness and confidence and ability to hit the ball for six as well. So, you know, a good all-round option. Obviously, Harry Brook at five, um, Joss Butler at six. You know, it's a pretty good top six, that. Uh, it was the bowling that really looked disappointing. And I just think, actually, they they definitely need to find a, an alternative role for Sam Curran for two reasons. I think, one, his bowling is just too ordinary for 50-over cricket. And th- there's a simple reason for that. He's short, and it's hard, and it's something I identify with. I was a fairly short, fast bowler, five foot ten. It's difficult against international cricketers, international batsmen on flat pitches. It's very difficult to stem the flow because your length ball doesn't bounce much from that height, from that trajectory, and therefore they can hit through it. And then if you haven't got, as a fast bowler, if you haven't got either extreme pace, dynamic movement or considerable height, I think it's very hard for you in one-day cricket. And, uh, you know, Mark Wood overcomes that he's not all that tall either but he overcomes that because of his extreme pace and even he isn't that effective in one day cricket so uh, Curran to me is just too ordinary for uh, to open the bowling he can be a change bowler in 50 over cricket but he can't be a frontline bowler I think mainly because of his height and the other point about Curran is I just I think his batting is underrated actually underused now I was watching him in the nets in the world cup he was hitting throwdowns, pretty fast throwdowns, miles, without any effort. His timing, his ability, his eye, his his range of, of shots, actually, is, is absolutely fantastic. And I think he could be a number six and certainly a number seven in one-day cricket. And then you use his bowling a little bit more sparingly. That's what mm. I would use as his role. And if you look at his stats, you know, at the moment, he's averaging 22 with the bat, and 42 with the ball. Well, I, I think there's more potential, more to get out of his batting, his strike rate of 100, and, and his bowling is exposed. So one issue, do you need a, a bit more bowling in the in the top six? You, you, you might need one or two bowlers in that top six, you know, one or two of the, the batters. I mean, Will Jacks, obviously, but it, it, it's, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, didn't, they didn't bowl him the other day. I mean, he was the guy, you know, a year ago, was... You know, actually played a test match in 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 Pakistan as a bowler, and he, he went around the park a bit, but uh, picked up wickets. It, it seems to me you you need those bowling options in among your batters. You know, quite quite a few of them just to to, to help out the bowlers. You know, when when they do go around the park. I mean, Sam Curran had a really difficult day. The the highest, uh, the most runs conceded by an England bowler in a one day international, nine, ninety eight. And it, at times towards the end there, it, it did look just 
quite quite straightforward, just whacking him to the boundary, and you know some some strong hitting. Weren't they? I mean, Hope was magnificent. Uh, Romario Shepard, he's a he's a he one six was a, was 112 meters, which I think was bigger than anything uh, we saw in India uh, during the World Cup. So you think Curran at seven, do you? Curran at seven? Is it seven? I, I, no, I mean, I'd like to see him at six, really. Six. I think six. But then obviously, you know, that means Butler goes to five and, you know, people start being pushed out of the team or, or, or whatever. So uh, it's it's difficult to, to, to find the, the balance quite right. Uh, I mean, the other problem I've got with Curran, by the way, is he does no ball a bit as well. And, you, you know, you should not know ball in one-day cricket as a fast bowler, really. And he does give away a few free hits as well, which I think is indicative of the fact he's straining for a bit of extra pace because his pace is around 80, 81 miles an hour. And he knows that's only kind of just about quick enough uh, for, for that sort of level of, of the game. So he's straining to try and find every last half a mile an hour and occasionally oversteps. But Will Jacks, maybe Will Jacks should try and become like Travis Head. You know, Travis Head was a key man in that Australia uh, World Cup, obviously winning the, 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 the man of the match in both the semi-final and the final. And, you know, his bowling was as effective as his, as his batting, actually, in, in many ways. You know, his bowling, he chipped in with wickets um, and was a reliable sixth bowler, as was Glenn Maxwell, in fact, who bats in the top six. So there's mm. a sort of one of the hidden reasons why Australia surprised everyone. And Mitch Marsh as well. And they've got Marsh. They've, they've got So they've got bowling options in their top six, whereas England don't seem to have that many options in the top six, you know, the one they put out in the in the first game anyway. And I think you, you probably need that, don't you? And, you know, all the five bowlers bowled their ten overs. They didn't look, to, you know, there was nowhere else... You know, Butler didn't turn anywhere else, couldn't t- turn anywhere else. He could have gone to Jacks, I suppose. But he had his two spinners anyway. Livingston bowled tidily, and Ray and Armand, you know, picked up a couple of wickets. So that's you know that that's something to think about. I, I mean, one thing I think though, Josh, so, so you wouldn't you wouldn't come to the conclusion that actually it's time to take Sam Curran out of the England one-day setup. Fine at T20 level, but actually take out the one-day setup. I mean, he's, he is only 25. It's incredible, actually. He's 25. He's played so much cricket. I think I worked out that he's bowled something like 23,000 balls in, in top-level cricket. I mean, first class, you know, list A, test, whatever, all the cricket he's played. Because he's been playing for such a long time now. He's what He's been playing at sort of 16, 17 He's bowled something like already in his career. He's bowled something like I don't know four thousand overs or something like that. Yeah, and you don't want to throw away that experience. You know, he has definitely got something. Of course, uh, Ed Smith in his book about the art of mm. selection talks about Sam Curran being a. Uh, he uses the phrase "swarm harmonizer" in that he lifts everybody else's game because he has such a kind of. Uh, a match awareness and can turn a game with bat or ball. Well, clearly that hasn't happened in, in the one-day game, although, you know, only a year ago he was man of the series in the World T20 and man of the match in the final. Uh, you know, so, you know, fantastic performance in that. And I think he's better suited to the shorter format where he can go through his variations in those four overs and batsmen can sort of set themselves against him a bit less in the longer format where he might have to get through 10 overs. They can line him up a bit. And so that's kind of where he, he needs to fit in, perhaps. I, I can see him being a number six. I mean, India were fielding Ravi Jadeja at number six, uh, who has a sort of similar record, slightly better batting average, but similar, well, in fact, and, and a better bowling average. He's a better all-round cricketer. But mm. Jadeja was batting at six. And I can sort of see Curran eventually becoming 
a person who could do that role and, and bowl, you know, perhaps five or six overs rather than relying on all ten. It, it actually comes back to the whole one of the whole things about Sam Curran, that the sort of the questions I remember asking these questions five years ago. You know, is he a, a bowling all rounder? Is he a a, a sort of genuine all rounder? Is, is he a bowler who bats? Is he a, is he eventually going to be a batter who bowls a bit? And it, it, that question, I think, is probably still not been answered, and that's that's probably one of the problems. You know, the runs aren't there, are they? I mean, he, he plays cameos. He, he did play one really significant innings for England in a one-day international in Pune on England's last one-day tour where he made something like 95 and he batted superbly. He made a first, he's made a first-class 100 now as well. So he's got over, you know, he's got over that uh, bridge. So there, I mean, he's definitely got some talent uh, with the bat, but they're, they're probably just a few too many sort of skinny cameos, really, rather than something, you know, sort of real weight of evidence. Of course, they pushed him up in in um, short-form cricket, haven't they, in domestic T20. He's been batting high up the order, which is, you know, a, a good thing. So, yeah, I, it, it's a tough one, I think. He's, 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 he feels that he's sort of a, a bit of a career crossroads in terms of slightly longer He's going to get 50 not form. out and okay. 5 for 20 today isn't he when he plays in <laughs> yeah. the second one day international yeah good luck to him I mean you know I think he's a really enterprising cricketer I think his batting has more unique ability than his bowling so eventually that's going to probably come through um, he just needs to play it, you know, have a bit more chance. It's hard if you're batting at seven or eight. You're not going to be in for very long. You're not going to have much time to build an innings, no, generally. No, exactly. So maybe uh, a chance to bat. Look at what happened with Ben Stokes when he was finally put up the order for mm. England. You know, he became one of the, the world's great batsmen. So uh, Carl hasn't quite got the same ability, but he's got some of that rare striking ability, which I think England could utilise better. Yeah, I think there's one yeah. thing about his batting, isn't there, that there's a, there's a question mark over, and that is his ability against the short ball. I think, it, and I think that's been a thing. That doesn't matter so much in one-day cricket, does it? I mean, it does matter in test cricket, clearly. But mm. And look at Travis Head. He's Again, he's overcome that, yeah. hasn't he? I mean, yeah. we were talking all about that in the World Test Championship final, uh, where India tried to bomb him and he got a big hundred and he's, he's turned the game in the, the World Cup final as well. So, yeah. you know, he's, ad he's adapted his game and, and minimised his weaknesses and maximised his strengths. Just sort of moving forward, this England one-day side, I'm thinking you know, the 50-over side, Are you would you be concerned about sort of the lack of depth, perhaps overall quality in, in their bowling? Is it, I mean, is it actually going to be a big issue? So whatever the batters do, you know the bowlers are always going to be under tremendous pressure because there there isn't that sort of absolute quality. I mean Gus Atkinson is you know he looks promising, doesn't he? But he's you know he's pretty raw, he's inexperienced. Bryden Cars similar really hasn't played that much international cricket. Rayan Ahmed, I mean he's presumably the replacement eventually for Adil Rashid. Liam Livingston, do you really want him bowling ten overs? And then there's Sam Curran, who you sort of feel he's a bit at a bit of a crossroads with his bowling. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. It, you know, one day bowling is incredibly tough and there are not many outstanding operators out there, are there? I think the way Australia adapted to the conditions in that final and the, the strategy that those fast bowlers used was, was very instructive. But you need that quality to, to begin with, to work with. And, you know, especially Hazelwood and Cummins are outstanding fast bowlers in any format. And they were able to, 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 you know, channel their targeting and their their focus to a particular way of bowling. England don't have the luxury of those bowlers that, with those sort of level of skills. Now that Broad has retired, Anderson doesn't play one day cricket. 
You know, they haven't really got a world-class fast bowler. Mark Wood is fast, but, you know, that's it, really. So, you know, if you look through the history of English cricket, there have only been two or three outstanding fast one-day bowlers, Darren Goff being one, Jofra Archer being the other, which is why they're still trying to find a way of getting him back. And mm. th until then... I don't see anyone. Gus Atkinson is decent, certainly, and I like his attitude. Rian Ahmed bowled well, and he looks like a you know an automatic replacement or um, assistant to Adil Rashid. So you know, in the spin area, they're quite well catered. England. I just think there, there isn't anyone who's a real top-notch fast bowler like a Bumrah. But those kind of bowlers only come around yeah. every generation, once a generation. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is a bit of a thankless task. I, I just wonder whether England's stocks just seem a little bit, and there are lots of names, but whether their stocks, in terms of experience, quality, it's just a bit thinner than some of the teams. I mean, certainly, you know, someone like India I and mean, Australia will have an issue, of course, you know, when their big three um, move on. Uh, you know, that that inevitable, isn't it? When you have that sort of quality, and you've got to try uh, to replace them. And, you know, England, you know, in the World Cup, they had, Mark Wood and they had uh, Chris Wokes, but you know they'll uh, presumably it might have already happened. There come a time where they will move on from fifty over cricket, especially if you're looking at the next World Cup in, in four years' time. Well, that's just about it for today. England, of course, in action this afternoon in Antigua, and the England women actually are also playing mm -hmm. a T20 in India as well. We'll be back at the weekend to look back at this one-day series and also how England women get on. Good luck to all the players. As I said, we'll be back to review it all at the weekend. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network.